Thank you so much. It's just such an honor for me to be here uh, and to be speaking here, both because of this amazing setting and because we've had this conversation, I think, for quite some time about the, the relationship between my work and what's happening at, at the Freud Museum. And it's really a huge honor for me in, in, a, in a, a, bunch of, a bunch of ways. My mom is a psychoanalyst. I trained in psychiatry. And so many of these artifacts and books and histories here are very meaningful for me. And then over the course of our engagement on social media, I'm a Twitter person, so if anybody wants to tweet me, that's where you, that's where you can find me. But we started this conversation on Twitter, and we've had a kind of ongoing co co uh, collaboration and conversation about this project um, for quite some time. And so I'm honored about that. I'm honored that many people uh, who I've been uh, conversing with are here uh, as well. And so thank you all. Thank you all for coming out. Um, I'm also really grateful because um, I'm not um, going to be talking about this book. Um, this book uh, came out about three months ago, and I've been doing a lot, a lot about about um, dying of whiteness. I'm just going to say a few things about it, and we can, maybe we can come back to it to, in the end. Um, but basically, this was a book about whiteness in America, and all the research that came out of this book really came out of the project that I'm going to be talking about tonight, the Schizophrenia Project. I really couldn't have conceptualized a project about whiteness if I hadn't led into it with, a, with a, a, not so much a project about blackness, but a, a project about anxieties about blackness, which really is what the, the protest psychosis is about. Um, but this project has been, I have to say, um, pretty surreal. It came out a couple of months ago, and I was laughing about the fire alarm thing because and when the book came out, it got a, a ton of press right away. The day it came out, it, it sold out in like five minutes or something like that. And it was all over the news. And then people may have seen that I had a talk in D.C. that was um, stormed by, by Nazis. Um, it was, uh, I don't know if it made it to the news over here, but it was very big news in the United States. Um, and so a fire will be not, no problem for me whatsoever. <laughs> um, I'll say it compared to that. But I will also say that Nazis... Um, they're, if you're if you just wrote a book, hire some Nazis because those guys sell books. Um, the thing went into like number nine on Amazon, and all my friends are like, "How can we get some Nazis and stuff like that?" Um, but it's been it's been actually it's been pretty intense. But the thing I want to say about dying of whiteness is really, um, you know, I'm a scholar of race and sociology and mental health. And what's uh, important for me is the ways that we conceptualize race, and not just race as a biological category, but race as a social category. And not just in terms of lived experience, but also the anxieties and engendered by, by race, by the history of race. And that's kind of the story I've been telling um, in, um, in Dying of Whiteness. Now, I'm going to show a terrifying slide, so if anybody needs a breather. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but that's basically a story about Trump and Trump voters, and really telling the story of how is it that um, Trump is enacting policies that end up being very bad for his supporters. And so what I do in the, in the Dying of Whiteness book is I look at the histories of healthcare, uh, guns in America, education systems. These are all examples of places where the policies that Donald Trump is putting into place, for example, blocking the Affordable Care Act with no plan whatsoever for how to um, how to create a national health care system, letting guns anywhere and everywhere um, without any safety plan whatsoever, eviscerating budgets for education systems. And what I show in the book is basically how the real victims of these policies are the white support, white working class supporters who voted for Trump in the first place. And so the question I ask in the book is, um, 
How, what what is it? Uh, what is it? So I spent five years for that project talking to um, you know people leading up to the, the Donald Trump phenomenon. And, and the one point I make, and I'll just make as a lead in here, um, is that it's not really a question of education whatsoever. People know what what the Affordable Care Act does. People know what education's value of education. But what Trump is doing is he's tapping into something much deeper. Uh, and one of the examples I give, for example, is guns, because Trump is very very pro-gun. All the judges he appoints are going to make it even easier for Americans to amass our own arsenals um, and that kind of thing. And it's kind of ridiculous. But basically, everybody's like, how can, how can he let so many guns in? And I, and I keep saying it's not a question of public health, even though a lot of my colleagues are writing all these articles about how guns are terrible for public health. Um, but it turns out that the history of guns and who gets to carry guns is really informed by the history of whiteness, a particular form of white masculinity, a historical form of white masculinity that is... Um, thought to be kind of out of power and it's, you know, um, it's a citizenship uh, white form of whiteness that's guarding against all these immigrants that are coming in and all these factors. And so what I do is I basically say, you can't understand this if you don't understand the history of the rhetorics that Trump is tapping into, particularly about whiteness in America. And the other part of that, of course, um, is that what happens, as I show, is that um, these rhetorics, the rhetorics of whiteness, end up being very bad um, for, again, Trump supporters. So in one of the big parts of the book, um, I look at white pushes for gun rights championed by people like Donald Trump. And then I look at suicide rates. Uh, gun suicide is um, two-thirds of all gun death. We have about 25,000 su- suicide, gun suicides in the country, and that's rising. Um, so gun suicide is astronomical in the country, uh, and it turns out 89% now of gun suicide is white men. And so there's this trade-off where the same people who are pushing for these arms and, and supporting Trump are the people who are dying uh, of dying of, uh, of whiteness, really, because it's this return to this idea of, of whiteness. So that's where I ended up after writing this book. But it all came to me, really, over the course of writing the previous book, which is uh, Protest Psychosis, which came out in 2010. And I'm so glad to go back to that story in this setting because um, I think that a lot of the stories that I started telling are ongoing, and hopefully we can have a conversation um, after I talk for 50-ish minutes or so, um, just about um, just about really what, what's the relevance of, of this story um, and what's the relevance of this story now, and also thinking about U.S.-U.K. comparisons and, and other factors like that. But the, the project really came to me. Um, I was at the University of Michigan at the time. I was a professor there, and I was really looking for an archive because I was really interested in this story of schizophrenia and race, something that had come up a bunch in my reading, and really this untold story, as I'll say in a minute, about why was it that black men were overdiagnosed with schizophrenia, and why was it that there was a 40-year history of this overdiagnosis? And nobody really had looked at the story of why that was. And so I was trying to look for a historical archive because... um, it, it doesn't say there, but I'm trained both as a psychiatrist and as a cultural historian, so I always kind of do both things in my work. And so I was looking around for an archive, and I was lucky enough to find an archive um, from this place called the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Now, even in the United States, a lot of people haven't heard of Ionia, but if I told you that in the 1930s or 40s or 50s, Ionia, everybody across the country would have known where that was um, because it was the home to one of the United States' leading hospitals for the criminally insane. Uh, These were people who were convicted of crimes, um, but then were found to be insane for one reason or another. It was a huge facility. You can see an aerial view here from 1932, uh, about a 450-acre facility, 50 acres of 
buildings and 400 acres of farmland. Uh, so really this crazy big institution. But what I started to do is I went with my graduate students for a period of years, and we just started to pull charts of people diagnosed with schizophrenia in the hospital. And what we found was a pretty interesting transformation, a transition that really created the framework for, for the book. And the transformation, in effect, was that if we pulled charts from the 1920s, 1930s, early 1940s, and we pulled charts for patients diagnosed with schizophrenia, we found that according to the hospital census categories, um, about eight out of 10 of these uh, patients were um, what were categorized as US white, uh, and 10 out of 10 were women. So it was largely white women who were getting diagnosed with schizophrenia and sent to this hospital for the criminally insane. And it was pretty um, comical in the present day context because the crimes that they were getting convicted of were things like shoplifting, or the one we saw again and again was creating a public disturbance and, and embarrassing your husband, which I guess was a criminal offense at the time. And what that meant, of course, was that these people were insane. So they would immediately be like, go off, go off to the sanatorium and, you know, check it out and that kind of stuff. And so that was through the, about the 1940s. All of a sudden, around the late 1940s, early 1950s, there's a dramatic transformation in the hospital. All of these women... Um, disappear from the hospital census. All of a sudden, the new face of schizophrenia is not, is not women. And there's a reason for that in part, because the hospital itself becomes more male. But also, what happens is that we started to see more and more um, patients who were categorized as what was called US Negro, African American, and male. So all of a sudden, the demographic of who got diagnosed with schizophrenia in the hospital, out of the blue, was um, black men, and the women were from rural areas a lot of times, but these black men were from urban areas like Chicago and Detroit. And the crimes that they were convicted of, there was homicide or assault, armed robbery, all these kind of things. But the, the one that really jumped out um, as we started to pull charts um, was um, civic disturbance, uh, civic unrest, right? That people had been members of the Black Power Movement, the Nation of Islam, uh, and they had been protesting, uh, protesting in various forms, uh, violent, nonviolent protests. I actually don't really agree with that division in the first place. Um, but basically, they were part of, of protests in Detroit and Chicago around the civil rights era. And what happened was these men got taken up off the streets. A lot of times, they were sent to the penal system. Um, they were put into solitary confinement. They were kicked in the head, um, everything like that. And you know, five, six years down the road, it turned out that they were hallucinating and they ended up in, in a psychiatric hospital. So by the time they got to the psychiatric hospital, they had every symptom of schizophrenia. And that was a very bad condition because it meant that um, it was harder to get out of the facility. But it was this two-level tragedy, right? I mean, this tragedy on one hand about, um, about what was happening to these men who really were not mentally ill when they went into the system, but they certainly were by the end. And the other was this story of these men helped me tell a bigger story about this kind of this bigger tension about the intersections of race and psychiatric diagnosis and politics that became the framework for the book. So with that as a framework, let me just step back and say, you know, I use the word schizophrenia. What what is schizophrenia exactly? And I can tell you that on the days of my week when I'm uh, an interloper in the psychiatry department, I'll ask people what is schizophrenia, and they'll say, oh yeah, no, it's a it's a biological illness. It's got all of these underlying biological things that we kind of know, we kind of don't know, but it has to do with like something in your brain or something like that, something in your genetics. Um, 
Um, I'm making fun. They're much more precise than that, but they're kind of straw men here, so I'm using them that way. Um, and so, uh, so basically, it's, you know, but the point is that there are symptoms of schizophrenia that are um, delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, withdrawal. And these symptoms are a manifestation of sometimes developmental or cultural factors, but according to psychiatry, um, there is an underlying biological substrate, and that, that biological substrate explains not just the symptoms themselves, but also the fact that at least according to genetics, there should be an equal prevalence of schizophrenia across the population. And what I'm you're looking just at schizophrenia biological framework that it shouldn't matter about race, it shouldn't matter about skin, it shouldn't matter about geography, that because there's something happening beneath the level of skin in the brain, that this is an illness that should occur in about one half to one percent of the world's population. Now, that's the biological portion of tonight's talk. Let me now also say uh, that on the other hand, um, is that just me or is that moving? Oh, it's fine. I don't, it doesn't bother me. I actually enjoy the breeze, so it's pretty hot in here, so that's great. Uh, what I'll try to do when I'm talking is I'm just going to rock back and forth uh, in line with the screen. So, um, anyway, uh, so anyway, um, on the other hand, um, there are social factors. There are social factors that render what I just told you kind of moot, right? I mean, in a way, by, we I, we should know more about the biology of schizophrenia. It's important to know about the biology of schizophrenia. But if you look at the material reality of what it means to live with schizophrenia in the present day, the realities of your life are shaped by a series of social or cultural stigmatizations or misperceptions. And the two, I think, that are most important for me one is about race. And so basically, I showed you that number that one half to one percent of the world's population should have schizophrenia. But if you are a black man in the United States, or you've been a black man in the United States for any time over the last 50 or 60 years, you can pretty much throw that number out the window because African-American men are anywhere from five, six, seven times more likely to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and underdiagnosed with other conditions, including depression, you know, anxiety, OCD, factors like that. So here's one place where biology and culture are at odds. Biology says this is something that should have an equal uh, prevalence and equal incidence, and culture says, well, let's throw race into the mix, and it turns out that offends things. Now, a related stigmatization is the story of violence, right? That there's not just a stigmatization that people with schizophrenia are black, which is something that we've had for the past 50 years, but also this perception that people with schizophrenia are unduly hostile or violent. Now, this is a stigmatization that probably doesn't need much introduction. In this audience, it's true in every crime show you've probably ever watched. If somebody shows up with schizophrenia in the first five minutes, you can just go do your laundry and come back at the end because they're always the killer. This shows up in movies a lot of times. It also shows up in popular perceptions. Here's a study. Um, that was done a couple of years ago in Chicago where three psychiatrists uh, basically gave questionnaires to experienced police officers in the Chicago area. And in one set of questionnaires, they said, Bob and Sam get into a fight. Bob pushes Sam and tears his coat. What do you do? And the other vignette, they said, Bob and Sam get into a fight. Bob has schizophrenia. Bob pushes Sam and tears his coat. What do you do? So the same vignette, not in any way um, you know, Bob has a sawed-off shotgun and he's shooting it in the air, running down the street. It's, it's what they called minimally intrusive violence. But what they found was simply adding the word schizophrenia to the vignette increased the police officer's perception that the perpetrator was violent. It went from about 15% to 69%, a strongly statistically significant shift 
just by adding that word schizophrenia. And so in a way, this word carried valence for the police because all of a sudden the cops started to think that these people were more violent and they also were much more likely to mandate things like incarceration and other kinds of legally mandated treatment. So just by adding this simple word. Um, now, of course, we also see schizophrenia show up. I do a lot of research on gun violence, and so every time there's a mass shooting, whether or not the person has any kind of psychiatric history, schizophrenia always is the diagnosis, often given by the media because people don't know. So it also, this, this stereotype of violence shows up in the aftermath, at least of mass shootings in the United States. And why am I calling these misperceptions or stigmatizations? Um, number one, um, there really is no racial basis for schizophrenia, so there's no blood test or x-ray or brain or PET scan or something like that that can tell you that any person of any particular race or ethnicity is more likely than anybody else to suffer from schizophrenia. Now, I know that it's more prevalent in certain demographic areas, but I'm just speaking from a biological perspective, that in a way, that number of seven times more likely to be diagnosed really is a cultural artifact, um, not a biological one. Also, it's pretty interesting, and again, you guys probably already know this, but if you look at, the, at the, just the literature on violence and schizophrenia, um, you know, think about schizophrenia. What are the symptoms? Delusions, hallucinations, paranoia. You're going to seem odd, right? You seem weird. Um, and social withdrawal. You're going to withdraw from society. Negative symptoms. You're probably on medications that might be sedating. And so you're less, you're less likely than the national average to attack somebody because you're disorganized, you're lethargic, you're withdrawn. So people with schizophrenia are actually less likely than a much more dangerous group, sane people, um, to attack other people. Um, but people with schizophrenia are at the top of the victimization crime rates, right? And so um, there's a lot of research that basically shows if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you're out in society, you have about a 65 to 130% greater chance of having the crap beaten out of you by someone else rather than attacking somebody else. And again, because I'm guns now, I also know that we see this with shootings too, that people with severe mental illness are far, far more likely to be shot by the police, um, shot by other people. They're much more likely to be the victims of violence, not the perpetrators of violence. So here's a place where this, this is. These are the stigmatizations that I'm centrally grappling with in, in that work and work I've done since the book came. And I would say that it's important because what I just told you is not in any way a surprise to psychiatry, right? We know uh, that these things are happening. We've known about um, the overdiagnosis, the stigmatization, and we've tried different things over the years. We've tried just basically checkbook diagnosis, you know, go through the thing and just don't even bring your own feelings into it, just check a box. Um, we tried training doctors in cultural competency with no disrespect to anybody. I'm going to trash this term at the end of my talk. Um, We've tried public information campaigns, um, so just to tell people schizophrenia is real, it's as real as heart disease or diabetes or something like that, but the, the, the problem really is none of these efforts have really made a dent in these particular stigmatizations. And what's interesting is actually the last 20 years have seen dramatic improvements in stigmatizations of many mental illnesses, right? Um, and that's because you know there are pharmaceutical advertisements on television and because the DSM is so big that basically we all meet criteria for something at this point, um, or meet, you know, multiple, whatever. Um, but um, but, um, but if, if you look at like public opinion polls, for example, you know, 
um, if you compare like 1950 to the present day, people are much more likely to say, I wouldn't mind if someone with depression babysat my child. I wouldn't mind um, if somebody next door to me had OCD or you know, something like that. Like People are much more accepting of mental illness. The only thing that people are worse on now than they were 50 years ago is I wouldn't want to sit next to somebody with schizophrenia on a bus because people think they might. So this one stigmatization, of a very racialized stigmatization, has been very, very um, resistant to the interventions. And that's where I jump in as somebody who has all this kind of weird training. Um, I would just say um, I didn't know my career was going to go in this path. I just kind of did what I liked and what I found interesting. And you know, when you do this, your parents are like, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life? I'm like, I'm going to do this. But it took me a long time to get there. But now, it turned out having all this training was useful, right? Because what I do is I combine cultural and medical discourses. And so part of what I do in, in, the, in my schizophrenia research is I look at popular culture. And I look at how there were dramatic shifts really between the 1940s and the 1980s in how American culture and world culture thought about schizophrenia. Now, there's an interesting British comparison story that we can talk about at the end about different, different and similar U.S.-U.K. But just for the U.S., there was a dramatic shift between 1940 and 1980 in line with what I told you before, um, a, a shift of gender, um, of temperament, uh, of docility versus hostility. Um, then I use that cultural story to tell a clinical story, right? I go back to the charts from the Ionia Hospital, and I say, um, how do those charts help me understand what was happening? Uh, you know, how, did, how does popular culture help me understand that? And then I use that to say, let's think differently about psychiatric stigma. So I'm just going to give you examples of all three of these uh, over the rest of the talk. Um, the first is popular culture. Um, if you look back in popular culture in the United States in the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, you would and you kind of went back to that time and you said, people with schizophrenia are armed and violent and dangerous and black and all this stuff. Nobody would have any idea what you were talking about because that's not how American culture thought about schizophrenia. Here are articles from the 1930s, uh, uh, 1920s, 1930s. And one way American culture thought about schizophrenia um, was as an, a disorder of genius, right? So there were all these articles that were basically saying, all the great white male poets and novelists and playwrights, they're all touched by this certain affliction which helps them frame their words in this poetic way. And that's because people thought schizophrenia was an illness with um, one of my favorite words of all time, grand eloquence, a propensity toward flowery po prose. So people thought schizophrenia was a disorder of genius. In fact, many psychoanalytic thinkers, including Freud, wrote about this as well. Um, and that's important because you might be thinking, well, we have a disorder like that in the present day, but it's bipolar disorder, right? But it's important to note that at this time in the 20s and 30s, hardly anybody got diagnosed with manic depression. It was a very small disorder. Um, schizophrenia was this huge, huge category, and it, had, it, it encapsulated many, many different people, inclu including creative thinkers. Another people might know that an earlier term for schizophrenia was dementia precox. And it was found in the seclusive, sensitive person with few friends who has been a model of behavior in childhood. So again, that's the opposite of how we might think about it in terms of you know, that police study. Um, if you look at psychiatric textbooks, really through the 1950s, it's a very similar story. So at that same time, people thought about schizophrenia as a mild form of insanity that was largely harmless to society. These are, these are from early textbooks of psychiatry. It was and it manifests by an emotional disharmony that negatively impacted people's abilities to think 
and feel like we cared about how people with schizophrenia felt. A uh, pretty, pretty radical uh, thing. And the first DSM came out, the DSM-1. It came out in 1952. Does anybody have a copy of the DSM-1 by any chance? It's teeny. It's like a 30-page pamphlet, but it's worth like 10,000 bucks or something like that. It's like there's a very few of them. It wasn't like this mass-produced thing. So if you have it, go home right now and lock it up. Um, but, um, but basically, the first DSM, when the first DSM came out, it defines schizophrenia as a schizophrenic reaction, an emotional disharmony, and, and regressive behavior. Um, think about that. What do you do when you regress? You stay home. You're not attacking anybody. You're, 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 you're quiet. Uh, right. And so now think about this language, mild, emotional, regressive. So who got diagnosed with schizophrenia? Well, certainly people you weren't afraid of. So there were a lot of articles in the popular press about inviting people saying basically, if you know somebody with schizophrenia, invite them into your home, have dinner with them, invite them in as boarders, the opposite of how you would feel. Um, and it was also a very popular trope in, in relation to white, really white middle-class women. So there were a lot of articles uh, about you know, women's magazines, women of America, modern women were being driven to schizophrenia by these pressures of having to be the perfect wife and the perfect mother and all these factors. So women were, women were cracking up with schizophrenia. And this, this narrative of white women's schizophrenia really got its, I think, most public airing in a 1948 Anatole Litvak film called um, The Snake Pit. Has anybody here seen this movie by any chance? Okay, so if anybody's seen it, uh, I apologize to everybody else because I'm sure I'm just going to ruin it for you, basically. Um, basically, what happens in this movie is it's a story about a woman played by Olivia de Havilland who had had a very successful life um, as a writer. She wrote magazine articles. Um, she did different things. She was successful uh, working at a publishing house. And then what happened is she's at work and some guy starts showing up and she makes a fateful mistake first, which is that she agrees to go to lunch with the guy. Then she makes a worse mistake, which is that she agrees to go to dinner with the guy. And then about, I guess, two weeks into their courtship, she makes the most fateful mistake of all, which is she agrees to marry the guy. I guess in the days before, like, you know, Tinder, people just got married in two weeks or something like that. Um, but what happened is they get married, they go into an apartment, and three days into their marriage, she has an outbreak of schizophrenia out of the blue. And the schizophrenia is manifest by this symptom, which is that she's unable to recognize her husband. She has no idea who her husband is. So, of course, they're like, you must have schizophrenia. So they take her off to this asylum. Uh, and you can see here, you know, she's all distraught because she's in this asylum. And I have to say, <clears throat> it's a pretty horrific asylum. They do all this terrible stuff to her. Like, they spin her around really fast. They make her take this freezing cold jacuzzi, like hydrotherapy with ice cubes. Um, but the most painful treatment that they give her with total respect to where I'm giving this talk right now is endless, endless, endless hours of psychoanalysis um, and, um, where, uh, where they, uh, my mom's an analyst, so I, can, I feel entitled to make that joke, um, uh, where they just keep saying basically, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And then every 20 minutes or so in the movie, they'll bring the husband back in and they'll be like, who is this man? And she'll look up all googly eyed and she'll be like, Dude, I have no idea, uh, which means that she still has schizophrenia. Now, here's me ruining it for you. Everybody should watch this movie. It's a great movie. Um, but about 15 minutes to go in the movie, she has a huge breakthrough in psychoanalysis where she realizes that it's all about her father. 
Uh, this is cascades, all of these uh, awarenesses. And about five minutes to go, she like wakes up and she's like, yeah, it's all about my father. They bring the husband back in. They're like, who is this man? And she looks up and she's like, darling, I love you. And that shows that she's cured from schizophrenia. And in the last scene of the movie, you see a kind of pan-wide shot of the happy couple driving away in their car from the asylum into the suburbs to reproduce, uh, or whatever people are going to do. Now, I'm slightly making fun of this movie. It was a very important movie at the time. People were not making tons of movies about psychiatric asylums. But it played off of this very familiar stereotype that was prevalent across society, which was that schizophrenia was a docile women's illness that was non-threatening to society and manifest in women. And we can also see this, for example, in early... Um, anti-psychotic advertisement. So here's an ad from the American Journal of Psychiatry from the late 1940s for a drug that later became an antihypertensive. But basically what you can see is that these white women are suturing away their symptoms with the help of this early psychiatric drug. Now, let me be clear. I'm not making a suggestion that every single person who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in the United States was a member of a category called white over this time period. In fact, there were entire so-called Southern Negro hospitals where schizophrenia was the only diagnosis pretty much given to every person who walked into the door. But what I am saying is that you wouldn't know that if you looked at American popular culture because schizophrenia really was coded as an illness of the white, really the white feminine mainstream in ways that encouraged identification with certain groups of people and rendered other groups of people as invisible. Now, Let's do one more popular culture thing, which is to jump forward to the 1960s. And pretty much everything I've told you uh, goes out the window, right? All of a sudden, we see the disappearance in American popular culture of the neurotic white woman with schizophrenia. And in her place, we see the emergence of a new character. And this is the angry black man who's hostile and violent and has schizophrenia. And he starts to show up in the early 1960s. This is a movie called Shock Corridor, a 1963 Samuel Fuller B-movie classic. Anybody here seen this movie by any chance? Okay, we got to do a film club. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's another classic movie. It's another movie about an asylum. But here, it's a, it's a men's ward. And the character who has schizophrenia is not Olivia de Havilland. Instead, it's an African-American actor, uh, Harry Rhodes, who plays a man named Trent. And basically, the story that Trent has is that he'd been a good student growing up in the South. He'd had all these um, great uh, experiences, but then he started listening to the words of Martin Luther King, and then he started reading the words of Malcolm X, and he became a black power protester, and he went and he tried to desegregate a school, and the pressure of trying to exert his civil rights uh, was so powerful that it drove him to schizophrenia, and all of a sudden this guy who was this great student, very calm, became angry and hostile, and in the key scene of the movie, this character actually starts a race riot, a Ku Klux Klan race riot, on on the ward. So all of a sudden we see this new character, angry black man, schizophrenia, driven crazy by civil rights, which leads him to schizophrenia. Now, that's one place where the black man with schizophrenia starts to show up. Another place is on FBI 10 Most Wanted posters across the country, where all of a sudden you see this new kind of crazy black man on the on the loose kind of thing. And so that, that's another place where all of a sudden there are angry black characters who people should be afraid of. It wasn't member before I showed you that there were things in the 40s about borders. Open your doors to people with schizophrenia. Now it's like lock your doors because people with schizophrenia are roaming, roaming the countryside. Another important point is that 
black men with schizophrenia start to show up in psychiatric journals all of a sudden. So it, this was news to me, but if you look at a psychiatric journal for, from the 1950s, for example, there won't be any conversation of race. It'll be like, we did a study about schizophrenia. We did this with schizophrenia. We did that with schizophrenia. But they never, they never say what race the patient is. All of a sudden, in the 1960s, mid to late 1960s, early 1970s, you see studies like this where people all of a sudden discover, oh gosh, um, there are black and white people with schizophrenia. And they do these things that are called comparison studies, uh, different kinds of comparison studies. And what they find in these studies is that the white form is the intellectual decline and the black form is the physical assault kind of schizophrenia. Now, anybody want to hazard a guess as to why all of a sudden in the 1960s these com racial comparison studies start to show up in psychiatric literature? And there's no right answer, but anybody? Sorry? Civil rights movement. That's exactly right, civil rights movement. And the reason civil rights movement is important is because it led to desegregation, right? And so we think about desegregation as, you know, being on busing and schools and, and uh, lunch counters, but it also desegregated the hospital. So all of a sudden, hospital wards, you never had to write an article about the race in the 50s because everybody was white. You were working in a, a white-only hospital. All of a sudden, the hospital wards in the 1960s started to be desegregated, and they were like, these kind of people with schizophrenia and these kind of people with schizophrenia, according to these researchers. And they were like, that guy doesn't look like that guy, so all of a sudden, let's start doing comparison studies. Exactly right. Now, the question that I'm going to ask now is, what happened? Because really what I just told you is not a huge time frame, right? I mean, the 1920s, 30s, 40s to the 19. 50s, late 50s, early 1960s, 1970s. Um, and really in the book, for people who have a chance to read it, I talk about three main mechanisms that led to this transformation. I'm only going to briefly mention two, just given the time. And then I'm going to spend a bit more time with the third. Uh, the first, I think, um, reason driving uh, this, um, this transformation in the race of schizophrenia actually had to do with something that was happening not in medical discourse, but in popular discourse, which is all of a sudden, schizophrenia became a very potent metaphor for talking about race, the racial tensions, the racial politics of the country in relation to what uh, this gentleman said about civil rights. Now, anybody here know what the word schizophrenia means? Split mind, exactly. Split mind. But in American discourse in the 1960s, it became a metaphor for a split country. All of a sudden, it was like the white part of the country, the black part of the country. We have a national schizophrenia because people recognized this fissure. And it was useful because basically the argument was that symptoms emerged when the white and the black part went together. Here's an article from the 1960s. And you can see here, it says, states, towns, and even individuals seem torn by a sort of racial schizophrenia in which Negro equality is simultaneously accepted and rejected. So this idea of racial schizophrenia. Um, in the book, I show how that term didn't show up at all, ever, in the 1940s across all American popular culture. And all of a sudden, in the 1960s and 1970s, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So racial schizophrenia. And here, what I'm saying is that schizophrenia really becomes a metaphor for racial tensions in the United States. A second reason that's important Again, it's not coming from psychiatric discourse. It's coming from society, and particularly from the civil rights movement itself. And here what I found was that schizophrenia actually became a metaphor that symbolized some of the deepest divides within the American civil rights movement itself. And so on one hand, 
I found, I think, 20 or 23 of Martin Luther King's sermons and writings, where Martin Luther King talked about schizophrenia as a trope to talk about the importance of nonviolent resistance. Here's um, his unfulfilled dream speech, his last speech at Ebenezer Baptist Church before he was assassinated in 1968. And what he says is, there's a civil war going on. And what he means is there's a civil war going on in the black mind, right? He's talking about black Americans. There's a schizophrenia, as the psychiatrist would call it, within all of us. And there are times that all of us somehow know there is a Mr. Hyde and a Dr. Jekyll in us. So what he's saying is that the black mind is split. There is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we have to choose the path of nonviolence. We have to choose the nonviolent partner in that, even though both of those parts play out within our minds. And that's important, right, because what I argue is that King is not referencing psychiatric use of the term. He's referencing Du Bois and Fanon and other scholars who are talking about a split double consciousness in black experience. And, and that literature predates psychiatric use of the term. Now, on the other hand, um, there were a lot of people from black, the Black Panthers, from the Black Power Movement, who were basically saying, I'm not down with nonviolent resistance. And for me, schizophrenia is not so much something about choosing this nonviolent path Instead, what it is, is black people are driven, being driven crazy by the pressures of living in a racist society. And so in this relationship, basically, their argument was to fight back about this, against the system is the only way to stay sane. And for example, there was a famous book by two psychiatrists, Black Rage, in the 1960s in San Francisco. And basically, what they were saying is that this rage is a reflection. So the schizophrenia is a reflection of living in a racist society. So that's number two, is that schizophrenia is being racialized not in psychiatric discourse, but in civil rights discourse itself. Now, the third, of course, uh, is that schizophrenia is also being racialized in psychiatric discourse. But the reason I'm saying is because it's reflecting all this stuff that was happening in society. So all of a sudden in American society, there were protests, there were revolts, people were standing up for change, social change. And it's very interesting to see how this creeps into um, the literature of psychiatry as psychiatry starts to grapple with this. In fact, um, the entire book is named after um, a series of articles that I found that were written by two New York-era psychiatrists in 1968. And basically, these guys, their names were Bromberg and Simon. And they were working in psychiatric emergency rooms. And they said, we thought schizophrenia looked one way, but now we think it looks different. All of a sudden, there are all these black men coming in with schizophrenia. They have coming in having changed their names to African names. They're coming in with the physical sign of the clenched fist. And here's what they wrote about this new form of schizophrenia. They said, the particular symptomatology we have observed, for which the term protest psychosis is suggested, <clears throat> is influenced by social pressures, the civil rights movement, dips into religious doctrine, the black Muslim group, is guided in content by African subcultural ideologies, and is colored by a denial of Caucasian values and hostility thereto. This protest psychosis is virtually a repudiation of white civilization. Now, for people who didn't quite catch that, um, they're basically saying either black people are being driven crazy by, by being in civil rights movement, right? Or they're saying they have to be crazy for even having a civil rights movement in the first place. But lo and behold, no matter what it is, it's a new form of psychosis, which they were calling this new form of schizophrenia. Now, this had very real, real-world uh, applications. 
Uh, for example, what happened when they started thinking about schizophrenia this way is that actually a lot of political uh, black power leaders um, started getting diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, given this framework. And so there's a guy, Robert Williams. Um, he was the head of the NAACP in South Carolina. Uh, and he was somebody who basically had seen um, cross burnings on his lawn, uh, lynchings, all these factors, and the police force was in the Klan. So they were not, they were not going to come uh, stand up for him. And so what happened was um, he started to say, black people need to arm themselves. We're not going to go shoot anybody. We're not going to go kill anybody. But we have a Second Amendment right to arm ourselves because the cops aren't doing it. And he wrote this famous book called Negroes with Guns. And his argument was basically... Um, the Second Amendment applies to us, too, because we're citizens and we have the right to arm ourselves. And lo and behold, what happened was there were FBI profile posters that all of a sudden showed up all over South Carolina and North Carolina. And I don't know, you can barely see it down here, but it said, armed and dangerous, and this man has schizophrenia. So they diagnosed him with schizophrenia, and that became their way of basically saying he can't have arms, he can't be trusted. And he actually had to escape into exile in Cuba. Um, another person who tried a similar argument was a guy named Malcolm X, uh, who again argued also, um, we are getting killed, and we, we're not going to go shoot people, but we have a right to defend ourselves. And so he was also advocating for a Second Amendment argument. And lo and behold, what happened to Malcolm X was exactly the same thing. I got access to Malcolm X's FBI uh, file, his profile, through the Freedom of Information Act. And what I found was that he was diagnosed with pre-psychotic paranoid schizophrenia because of his desire to get arms. And again, this was very useful. So th that was very real applications of what was happening. And then there were metaphoric applications. And that's where there were these new drugs called antipsychotic drugs, and they were starting to be advertised um, in leading psychiatric journals like the American Journal of Psychiatry, Archives of General Psychiatry. And lo and behold, how are these drugs, these very major tranquilizing drugs, being advertised? Well, it wasn't through white women knitting away their symptoms like the other one. Instead, all of a sudden, these ads start showing African masks. And remember, I told you that these guys were thought of changing their names to African names. So this is very culturally uh, important kind of representation, where all of a sudden, the diagnosis itself is racialized in all these trippy ways. Another important thing about these ads is that they use, according to anthropologists, what is probably the most racist language in uh, terminology in English, the so-called divide between the primitive and the civilized. And they're suggesting that Thorazine is the treatment. And probably the most problematic uh, series of ads were ones that showed up for an antipsychotic Haldol. And these ads started to show up in 1968, and they pretty much looked uh, like this. Now, let's do a little bit more audience participation. This is an ad from the American Journal of Psychiatry. And I'm just curious what jumps out to people from this advertisement. What's that? Uh, black woman? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny because it's actually a black man. Uh, I can tell you that because it's modeled after James Brown. Um, who had an FBI profile just like Malcolm X did at the time. So this is a man who's supposed to look like, uh, like James Brown, um, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, according to the FBI, for being a civil rights protester. Um, but also, it's distorted, right? So you really can't tell. It's like this very stereotypical distortion, right, in a way that makes the gender and all these things, uh, um, you know, ambiguous in a, in a way. I think that's right. Any, any, anybody else? The clenched fist? Exactly. And so the traditional clenched fist was a solidarity fist. Think about the 1968 Olympics or every representation of the fist. The fist is this. It's we are five fingers together and here's our palm. 
But if you invert the black power fist, it's seen as a threat. So all of a sudden that fist is not a solidarity fist. It's I'm going to punch the psychiatrist in the nose if I don't get some held all fists. Um, anybody else? Anything else? Sorry? I'm sorry, was that, that, uh, the, re- the reactions part? Yeah, okay, so people thought about schizophrenia as a reaction. But I think important in that regard is also think about what I showed you before about that woman, the two women in the, ho- in the hospital. They were in a hospital, right? Um, I think the important thing about reaction is this is, as far as I can tell, I mean, there's, you know, it's art, right? It's like open to interpretation. Um, but it looks like an urban scene to me. Um, and so it's definitely not a hospital. This person's wearing street clothes. Um, and it's also, it's hard to see on this slide, but it's hued orange on the page. And that's important because of context, because this ad shows up about two months after the Detroit riots, the Watts riots. All of a sudden, you know, the cities are burning. And what this text tells us is assaultive and belligerent cooperation. Is it social cooperation, clinical cooperation, political cooperation? Haldol is the treatment in any regard. So here's this collapsing of all of these factors at once into the face of literally of schizophrenia. Now one last part um, before I switch gears uh, once again is that this wasn't just happening in psychiatric journal advertisements, it was also happening in the diagnostic terminology of schizophrenia itself. So here's a representation of the DSM-2. Lo and behold, what year does the DSM-2 come out? 1968, very important year for world politics. And they changed the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. 1952, remember I told you it was regression and emotion and feeling and Olivia de Havilland, all that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, 1968, they changed the diagnosis and they add hostile and aggressive attitude and projection. And the text in the thing says, the patient's attitude is frequently hostile and aggressive. The patient uses the mechanism of projection, which ascribes to others characteristics he cannot accept in himself. So all of a sudden, using male pronouns as well. And so projection, I mean, it means many different things. In this, in this very building, it means very different things. Um, but, uh, but I will say that when I think about projection, I think about I can't, I can't stand my feelings, so I'm going to lash out, right, something like that. So it's which was before, which was docile, all of a sudden it's projection. And so, lo and behold, what happens to the diagnosis of schizophrenia in psychiatric journals? Well, this is the kind of crux of the book, that all of a sudden, after and around the period around 1968, all the data, I did a bunch of um, quantitative studies of the use of schizophrenia in case studies and psychiatric literature, and all, all of these terms, hostile, aggressive attitude, projection, anger, everything related to it, aggressive, violent, hostile, all that stuff. Um, These are race unidentified, and these are black men. So all of a sudden, black men become defined as all these terms. Black men also increasingly become defined as violent toward others. And in the period around um, the uh, release of the DSM-2, all of a sudden, a skyrocketing of black men in these journals being described in terms of criminality. And so before I told you why is it that black men started to get di- overdiagnosed with schizophrenia in the 1960s? Well, here it is. We changed the, <laughs> we changed the um, diagnostic criteria, right? I mean, that's probably why it happened, right? And it's not just like, oh, psychiatry went in a room and there was like, 
you know, this evil cabal. It was the psychiatry was reflecting what was happening in society. So that's the point I'm trying to make. Is that it's not an accident that black men get overdiagnosed with schizophrenia in the 60s because all this junk is happening and that really changed how we think about schizophrenia, how we respond to it. And even though down the road we took all that stuff out of the DSM, it still became affixed, in, I think, in particular ways. So the last part before I finish is to then go back to the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Now, again, I mentioned before, this was a pretty remarkable structure, um, a huge mid-century facility in line with kind of the great asylums uh, in the United States. Um, if anybody's been to Michigan before, that's where I used to live, and you ask somebody where they are from, they have this annoying thing that they do, which I used to do also, which is nobody will tell you where they're from. The state is... Uh, shaped like a mitten, so they'll, they won't tell you. They'll hold up the mitten hand, and they'll do this. And so Ionia is around the fourth metacarpal, if anybody's uh, ever going to visit uh, visit Michigan. Um, but again, around mid-century, it was this huge facility, um, about uh, 400 acres of farmland where the criminally insane could go kind of work off their symptoms like a kind of Vivarian summer camp. Um, and 500 of these were large, scary, gothic stone buildings. But it was interesting when I started to look through the charts um, because even though like the idea of what it meant to be in an asylum at that time was, you know, the rest of your life, throw, lock away, throw away the key, all that kind of stuff, that actually wasn't what I found. There was a big emphasis in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, particularly when it was white women, of returning women to functionality, right? The average length of stay in the asylum was about two years for people diagnosed with schizophrenia. And when they were in the hospital, they taught people all of these life skills that would help them readjust. So they taught them music. They taught them knitting. Um, every year at the Michigan State Fair, there was a big booth and Ionia's schizophrenic women would sit out at the booth and people would come up and be like, make me a doily or make me some socks or something like that. And so this thing of like, basically, here are women who are returning to function. Also, every year in the Michigan State Fair parade, there would be a float of Ionia's schizophrenic women kind of floating down Main Street, waving to people. So again, the opposite of what you would think if you were thinking about something in terms of fear. Now, all of this changes in the 1960s. All of a sudden, the architecture starts to look more uh, like kind of the classic one for over the cuckoo's next kind of architecture, much less inviting. Um, nobody's getting out of here, uh, really. Um, and as I mentioned before, this goes hand in hand with the change in the demographics of the hospital. So all of a sudden, more and more African-American men are coming in, and these men are seen to be hostile and violent. And so at that time, people didn't think, gosh, let's have these men make some socks and doilies for us. <laughs> They said, holy crap, these men might escape and they're really dangerous, especially because this was a very white rural area where this was happening. And so all of a sudden what starts to happen is they build moats, they build fences, they build razor wire around the outside of the facility and it becomes more and more um, like a penal kind of facility in a particular way. And you know where this story's going, which is that in 1978, literally overnight, the Ionia State Hospital became the Riverside Correctional Facility, a medium and then maximum facility um, for violent male offenders. Now, I had a crazy and really, really life-changing experience when I was doing research for this book, which is that at the end of the time that I um, had been, I'd been writing about this hospital for a good couple of years, right? And I, I, I felt like I knew so much about it. I knew who was there. I knew who was in it. And I got lucky enough, um, you know, I tried, um, and this is a 
tip for young historians who might be in the audience, but I tried um, to get into the Riverside, uh, the, to the Riverside Correctional Facility, and I tried to say, I'm writing a book, I'm doing all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And then I just lied, um, and that was very effective, uh, so that's what you should probably do. Um, but I, I found out the warden was a history buff, and I told him I was writing a history of the region, which is kind of true, I was writing a history of the region. But it turned out that over the time, we got to know each other, and I got 15 guided tours uh, of the facility. Uh, and it was it was pretty interesting, right? Because I, when I drove up the first time, I thought, well, here's a facility that I wrote about, but that the facility I knew closed, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, right? There's not going to be anything the same. But the weird thing was, you know, you go up to a facility like this. Um, for people who visited prison, you know, there's they don't just let you in, um, right? They, they wand you in places that have never been wanded, and they, you know, do all. They put you in, but the funny thing was, then they opened the door into the facility with you know my armed tour guide, and uh, and it was like walking back in time. All the buildings were still the same, you know. Some had been retrofitted. There were some new ones, but like the yard was still there. The receiving hospital, ECT, and I started walking around with guards who were showing me around. Say, wow, this is unbelievable. Here's where they did the ECT. Um, here's where the you know the prisoners did this, the patients did this all this thing. But the funny thing was the guards had no idea, and they were like, "What do you mean this place used to be a nut house? Like, what are you talking about?" Um, I had no idea, and they actually started emailing me and saying, "Can you send me pictures of the nut house so that I can show my wife that the place I used to work in um, was a, was a psych hospital?" And it was so interesting for me for a, a bunch of reasons. But I think the main one in relation to this talk is that here was a facility that looked just like. Um, just like it had earlier on when the, when the hospital became a prison. It really looked incredibly similar. And from a racial standpoint, it functioned the same way, right? In the 60s when they shut the, ho the hospital, it was about an 85% black facility in a very white rural area. And it turned out the prison was about 85% black facility. In a so here's, a, here's a facility that looks the same. And from a race standpoint, it functions the same. But there's this complete institutional amnesia to the point where people didn't even recognize what the facility used to be. So they were walking through history and not recognizing it. And for me, that became a metaphor, really, for those stereotypes of schizophrenia that I talked about before that might not make sense. Why is it that we think about schizophrenia as a black disease when there's nothing about race in the DSM? Uh, and why is it that we think about schizophrenia as a violent disease when people with schizophrenia are much more likely to be victims? They're much more docile. And the point I want to make to you tonight is that that is actually for a historical reason. There's a historical reason for that. And that's because just like those guards, when we use those stereotypes, we're walking through the, the grounds of history that's been laid before, but because we've raced tracks so effectively, we don't realize how much history shapes that. And that's why, in the last point I want to make tonight, I argue that kind of stigma is best understood not just as an overt stigma, you know, you see somebody with schizophrenia and that's your opinion. It's also from a historical standpoint, stigma against schizophrenia is a disorder of remnants. Now, what do I mean by that? A couple of things. One is that um, we still have these stereotypes of people uh, as violent, even though we know that's not the case. Um, and those stereotypes are very much shaped by race. And so if you understand history, you can recognize, I think, that, for example, stigmatizations of mental illness are not all that's going on when these cops say that they think people with schizophrenia are violent. Also, a 50-year history of race in the United States. And so what I argue is that to really destigmatize cops and other people, you 
don't just teach them about the history of mental illness, you know, that it's like cardiovascular disease. You also have to teach people about race and racism in America because that's equally a part of how we've constructed the stigma. Um, another point is that um, stigma continues to live on invisibly, even in our own, uh, in the world around us. Uh, I did this great project, um, which I'll gladly send around to this list if anybody just um, send me a tweet, uh, but it's an article that came out in the Harvard Black Studies Journal a couple of years ago with a student of mine where we looked at mental illness terms in popular music. And there are these great databases that you can use. Um, it's actually a free service, so it's super easy, but it's like leoslyrics.com, songlyrics.com. And you go onto these websites and you can type in, you know, whatever, how often does this word show up in a song? And so we typed in depression and depressed. And it turned out that the artists we got were like Joni Mitchell, Celine Dion, the Eagles, the Spice Girls, all these kind of things. And it was this very much like, um, I, I am tone deaf, I apologize in advance, but it was basically like, I got so sad, I got so depressed, and then I wrote this song, and here's the. That was basically how people use depression. So it was a very white cartel. Basically, we're thinking about our own depression in a particular way. Now, when we typed in the words schizophrenia and schizophrenic, I say apologies to Tupac, whose words should never show up on a PowerPoint slide in an <laughs> academic lecture. All of a sudden, there was no more Spice Girls, no more Dion. And all of a sudden, the people who were saying schizophrenia or schizophrenic were rappers. And they said it in ways basically yeah, I'm schizophrenic, and that makes me more dangerous. It makes me more dangerous to other rappers. It makes me more dangerous to society. It makes me more dangerous to police. Now, um, I don't think that these rappers were using schizophrenia to say, and therefore I have a chemical imbalance in my brain and I need some Haldol. Um, what they were doing is they were referencing the word schizophrenia used in the civil rights era, right? This idea that basically society is driving me crazy. Or... Um, I have a logical, my insanity is a logical reaction um, to the, the racism that I'm surrounded by in society and the violence is my way of staying sane. And so in a way, what, I'm so, what I think is important is that both of these traditions are still alive. There's the psychiatric tradition, but I think rap shows us that there also is um, this civil rights tradition of what it means to go crazy actually dates back much farther. If you look at like um, Bessie Smith blues around the slave era, you know, going crazy was seen as a sign of resisting the master and things like that. So there is this long history that I still think is alive. Um, I can't help it. I have to throw guns in everywhere. I also just tell you that this history of racial uh, insanity also plays out in gun discourse, which is what I'm studying a lot now. And so you can see that, for example, this is the NRA spokesperson, Dana Loesch. And they're using this to basically say, they're, they're basically saying um, white people should resist using the black power fist and images from civil rights to justify white gun ownership, right? So it's basically like, watch out for the crazy black man. But lo and behold, when the crazy, not crazy black man tries to arm himself, it turns out he's not embraced as a patriot or a freedom loving person. He's seen as a threat or a terrorist. And so that still plays out with guns. Um, I can't help but throw in another movie. Um, there also are, I think, imp it's important to think about our anti-stigma campaigns. Now, there was a movie before everybody's time here um, called Beautiful Mind, um, which was filmed uh, in New York, even though they acted like it was filmed at Princeton. Um, and basically, this was a movie about a brilliant mathematician at Princeton, played by Russell Crowe. Anybody here seen this movie? People have seen it, right? So it's interesting, right? Because on one hand, this is a very important movie because making a movie about schizophrenia. 
But on the other hand, think about what version of schizophrenia they're making. They're making it based on that 1930s model that I showed you, the great white male genius. And the argument basically is it's important as a destigmatizing movie, but there also are many other stories about what it means to be black and schizophrenic and always thought to be violent, like great literature by a fantastic novelist, Victor Lavelle, who writes all these books about madness and insanity, but they never get made into Ron Howard films. And so even our destigmatization campaigns, I think, are important to think about. Two last points. Um, it's important to think about this in terms of how we think about destigma. Now, I mentioned before about cultural competency, and people were probably like, I can't wait for him to get back to cultural competency. But I will say, I think cultural competency is important on one hand. How many people here have heard of cultural competency? It's a movement in the United States which became very popular, but it was basically like be culturally or racially or ethnically down with your patients. Um, now, it's become many other things, but when I went to medical school, for example, it was um, they would give us flashcards about the different ethnicities and tell us what to say when we walked into a room of a patient. Um, and so I kid you not, the one for Asian Americans, um, we, were, um, we were supposed to compliment their ancestors. That's what it said on the card. Um, and you could just think of this doctor-patient interaction where like a guy walks into the room and you're like, how about the Ming Dynasty? And the guy's like, dude, I'm from Fresno. What are you talking about? Or something like that. And you know, you also think about like the one for the, um, you know, walk into the African American room and be like, yo, homie, what's up? Something like that. Like it just became this kind of ridiculous kind of stereotype. And there was never a card for white people, right? In a way. So cultural competency, it was well intentioned, right? In this way. But what we've been arguing is basically. There were other races that are at function in the room, and hopefully that's what I've tried to show you in this talk, that it's not just the racial assumption of the doctor, the doctor's racism. That's not what's driving this narrative. It's also the race of the structure, of the system. Is it a hospital or a prison, metaphorically? The race of the diagnosis. That's structure that is not at all addressed by cultural competency. And so with a colleague of mine, Helena Hansen, we're starting a new movement called Structural Competency. And basically the argument, and I'll be happy to tweet about this also if people want, um, is to say it's not enough to make people sensitive to other races and ethnicities. You have to understand a bit about what I'm talking about here, which is you have to understand how structures themselves can become are racist or can become racializing or can lead to racial outcomes. And finally, there's, of course, a story about the criminalization of mental illness. I mentioned before that if you would have gone up to somebody in the 1920s, 30s, or 40s, and you would have said, we lock people with schizophrenia away, they wouldn't really have known what you were talking about, right? Because even though we were putting people in asylums, the people who were getting put into asylums, it was like your mom or your sister or your crazy aunt, something like that. And the goal of those asylums was to recuperate people. And I can't say this strongly enough, having looked through those, uh, the records, you know, they trained them how to do a job interview, how to make different things that might be or things like that. The goal was to bring people to society. And before, even though there's this stereotype of the asylum, the average length of the stay in the asylum was like two or three years, right? It, it was long according to the lifespan then, but it wasn't long compared to us, right? Um, and really what's happened over the course of the time period that I've talk, talked about here is this very radical transformation where all of a sudden in the present day in the United States, um, you are 80% um, likely if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia to be in a penal, in a, in a jail, 
not in a hospital system. Hospitals went out of fashion, they went out of business, and prisons became our new psychiatric care facilities. And there, the average length of stay is over 10 years, right, uh, in, in a way, no matter what, and factors like that. And so this radical transformation about the building of this prison industrial complex. Um, now, there are many reasons why that transformation happened, having to do with economics and other factors. But I hope you can see that it's also central to my argument, which is that the only way that we could transform hospitals into prison is to enable a transformation in which we change the way we thought about schizophrenia from an illness of um, of docility to one of hostility and from an illness of us to an illness of them. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for a riveting talk. And we've got about 25 minutes for questions. Uh, I'm sure there's lots to discuss. I'm going to be cheeky and steal the first question. Uh, because um, it's a very broad question, and you've touched on it, but I wonder if you could expand on this, that there's been quite a lot of scholarship and quite a lot of work on the role of the pharmaceuticals industry in shaping the discourse of so-called mental illness. And I wondered if you could maybe just in a broad way talk about how your findings might intersect with some of those findings. Mm -hmm. Well, before I wrote these two books that I talk about, my book before this was a, a book um, uh, called Prozac on the Couch, which was largely a psychoanalytic reading of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and it was showing how, the drug, how effective the drug companies were in shaping markets. Now, um, I've had many really interesting, trippy experiences with pharmaceutical industries since that book came out and since this book came out. Um, on one hand, I've done a lot of speaking at, at pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then um, for like five minutes, I was an expert witness in a class action suit against the pharmaceutical industry based on my research, um, showing how um, the drug industry um, was, it was the, these gender, it was race and gender stereotypes, how they were targeting white women for antidepressants was the story I told. And um, it turned out I was a really crappy expert witness because um, they'll ask you questions like an academic, like, is this drug killing people, yes or no? Like, that's where they want to box you in, and you're like, well, it's not yes or no. It's like, whatever. And they're like, no, no, you got to say yes. You know, so I, I couldn't do that. Um, but in those five minutes, I got access to all the drug company archives. Um, and, uh, and it was amazing to me to see how astute they were at, at seeing trifts, shifts in popular culture, right? Um, when women were thought to be unhappy housewives, they cr constructed mother's little helper in their, in their pharmaceutical advertisements. Um, when, when women were thought to be balancing home and work um, and the pressures of motherhood, all of a sudden all the drug ads would have balancing and women coming back in business suits, um, carrying grocery bags, you know, looking for their kids and stuff like that. And so partially, you know, there, there is a story, of course, about how um, maybe culture influences how, why people come to psychiatrists but it was also very impressive for me how much the pharmaceutical industry was so astute in playing, paying attention to what was going on in culture. And so I have to say, I came to admire that in, in a particular kind of way. And the reason is, of course, it's nefarious and they're creating markets and they're doing all that kind of stuff. But then I thought like, well, as psychiatrists, what are we taught about culture? And if you look in journals, it's like, 
we're locking the drug rep out, out of the hospital, and we're closing our doors. And doctors, it's hilarious. If you look at these studies of pharmaceuticals, for example, is your influence, are you influenced by pharmaceutical? And every doctor will be like, nah, I'm totally objective or something like that. And it misses the point, right, which is that the drug companies are sewing in the message, like any good advertiser, to racism, sexism, culturalism, economics, anxiety, all these kind of things. And so in a way, I, I've come to argue that we need to train doctors using drug ads, you know, that in a way, doctors have to be more astute about what's going on in culture. And this fantasy that you're, oh, I know the DSM, so I'm not going to be swayed. And it's like, oh, yeah, right, you know, that kind of thing. And so in a way, th what was happening was this mix of culture. And part of the reason I say that is because the story I just told about schizophrenia it's, it's a historical story, but there's another story happening right now that's probably going to be somebody's book in 10 years or in another book in 20 years. So it's really what's the skill set that can help you identify you know, this. Maybe the story now is about children and antipsychotics. Maybe it's about attention deficit. Maybe it's about Trump, Trump anxiety disorder. Uh, you know, something like that. And so... Um, but in a way, it's, it's a skill set. And so it, I, that probably wasn't the trash pharma answer you were expecting. Um, but I would say that I think there's something important to learn about that. And I guess the other part is, and I get in a lot of trouble when I say this, and maybe it's because I'm in a social department now I can say it more, but like, I don't know. Like, it wasn't so much, like even when I was writing this book, I was prescribing psychiatric drugs to patients, right? And so it wasn't like this made me totally anti-drug. Um, it, it actually made me want better drugs <laughs> in a way and, and to be, have more collaboration and factors like that. So it's more about how, you know, the, I think it's important to understand the mechanisms that pharmaceutical industry is doing. But, but that's different from saying we're rejecting it because I feel like if you're rejecting it, like, um, I, I don't know, there's this fantasy, I don't know if it's true, but in the United States it's like you, we, we can't get free pens anymore and we can't have the drug reps coming to lunch with us and because our, our medical judgment is so objective. And I'm like, that's the, for me, that's the wrong message. Not, not, not that we have to, I mean, the pens, <laughs> they were nice pens. Uh, but, uh, but it's also that, um, you know, we, we should, like, I don't know. You can tell where I'm coming from. I feel like psychiatry as a whole would be much better off if it said, we treat socially constructed uh, conditions um, that, are, that are also biologically based um, with a combination of social, biological, and cultural factors. In other words, getting back to some of the original stuff that some great psychoanalyst many years ago thought of. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I just, this is a long diatribe, but it is, you know, like when psychiatry does stuff like the decade of the brain and it's all about the brain and stuff like that, it, it gets us farther from, it, it, I just feel like it opens us up more to the kind of manipulations that I was talking about here. Who's got questions? Okay, we'll come to you first and then I'll go to the back. Hi, um, I'm a mental health chaplain and I spend a lot of my days on the wards in psychiatric hospitals. And I meet a lot of young black men with the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia who are brought up in Pentecostal Christian homes but have or want to convert to Islam. And I'm just interested in what you talked about, about the nation of Islam in the 60s, but I wondered if you got any comments about the sort of, then there was this big fear of civil rights, and now there's this big fear of Islam right. and 
how that's connected. Do you mind if I, I mean, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but I'm curious how you would answer that or what resonated for you in the talk. I was admiring your note-taking skills also, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but I'm, I'm curious what your response would be. Um, well, I mean, the staff come out with things like, oh, he doesn't know who he is. Oh, yeah, he keeps changing his mind all the time. Oh, don't take it too seriously. Whereas when I actually talk to the, the person it feels like it's a protest in the same way. It feels like it's a, I reject white culture, oppression, this idea of the meek and mild Jesus. I want something that's strong, a brotherhood with rules, discipline, all of that. Yeah, that's it's beautifully said. I mean, it's funny. I, if you have a chance to read the book... Um, there are there is a conversion story in the book um, of somebody who converted to Nation of Islam toward the end of, of the book, and it is a similar kind of thing of people who are lost who are found by a particular kind of message. And so, you know, I I think it's such an important story, right? And um, you know, I I don't know, but it's, it's the, I guess the hard part I'm thinking is like, what, where does that leave you as a clinician, right? In a way, because it's like, what's the role of mental illness? You don't want to say, therefore, your suffering is false or, or things like that, you know. But I. I would say that part of why we did this move to structural competency is not to say, um, I mean, I feel like people need more help, not less help. I'm not trying to argue that we should, I mean, even for the, there's a part of the book about the idiocy of the deinstitutionalization movement because not everybody got deinstitutionalized in the 60s. It was really only white patients that did. All the black patients got recategorized as prisoners. Um, but the reason we're arguing for structural competency is to say that there has to be a humility um, that basically all the pressure in the world, if you're the doctor, is like, here's the patient right in front of you. What's the diagnosis? What's the plan? What's the insurance? What's the medication? I understand that. But so many of these issues are being formed in society. They're, they are the result of racism, oppression, and things like that. And so in a way, it's a call for mental health to be much more engaged in the community. And I think it's actually better here than it is in the United States. But um, but it really is a call that if, if mental illness is, is, like, think about structural racism, for example. There are these <clears throat> problematic studies where basically they show, um, like one study I read was... Um, People with structural, who have suffered structural racism or racism have high cortisol levels, um, and therefore we need to lower their cortisol levels. And I'm like, no, we should think about how to fix the racism, right? You know, um, we, There was a big study when I was at the University of Michigan, and it was like 10 years, zillions of dollars. They did all these PET scans. Oh, sorry, not Michigan. Um, Pennsylvania, uh, something. Uh, I don't want to get in trouble. And... and, um, and uh, and it was the neurobiology of poverty. They did all these brain scans, all these things of people in poverty. And it turned out, after 10 years and all these scans, all this study, it turned out if you grow up in a very resource-poor, high-stress environment, you're much more likely to get mental illness. And after 10 years, they were like, poverty is the thing. And then they packed up and they went into another study. And, and I'm like, no, why don't we do another 10 years fixing the poverty? You know, stuff like that. So I feel like there's, there's a... There's a and, and I understand it. You know, we're all in our boxes about our expertise and what you can and can't realistically do. But I feel like it's it's part of why in this structural competency thing we're calling for more alliance um, between mental health and political engagement and the world out there and things like that. And I feel like that might be relevant there as well if you look up the structural competency stuff. Uh, oh, 
方がいいかな。あ、oh, okay. <laughs> you know、oh, okay. I'll, I'll ask the question anyway. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, okay. We'll join your two questions. <laughs> so, if, if,、uh, if schizophrenia is as a result of this racism, that,、uh, racism, how did it find its way into places like Africa?、Mm-hmm. That was my first. Or was that? How did it make its way? How did it or did not? Yeah, make its way into Africa. Yeah, yeah. Or did no. It not? I, I, let me just be clear. I'm not arguing against the biology of mental illness, even though it probably seems like it from my talk.、Um, I, I want to be clear that there probably is a biological substrate.、Um, and there, and you know, what we're learning about genetics and epigenetics, I mean, epigenetics is a great example of why, where we should be going, right? It's an intermix of cultural tensions、um, and underlying biological substrates. So that upends the way we used to think about it. But I'm not saying that there's no such thing as the biology of mental illness. I do think that there is some kind of phenomenon that has a biological substrate. And I'll even say more than that. like, I used to work as a psychiatrist in Detroit in the emergency room, and people would bring in you know,、um, their, their father, their uncle, who was really floridly psychotic, right? And really destructive and really frightening, right? And at that moment, I wasn't going to be like, well, your dad's suffering from a socially constructed illness and we need to <laughs> fix racism or something. It's like, no, your dad you know, probably needs some. Supervision and some medication. So I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say that,、uh, you know, and I, and I want to be clear about that. And probably the reason there is this kind of form of mental illness around the world is because of some kind of biological state, although it is interesting to see how different we interpret it. If you look at the back of the DSM, for example, you know, it's nerves in Mexico, it's this and that. So, it, it's, it, so I'm arguing for emergence of biology and culture, but I'm not trying to say, I'm not, I'm not trying to be an anti psychiatrist. Or an anti biologist, or an anti, or a Luddite in a way.、Um, I, I would say that、um, it's always some kind of combination.、Um, but I also think that, I mean, really think about my talk. It was a talk about stigma, right? And so part of it is why does certain stigma persist? And then I tried to show how, how, how pernicious that stigma has been for the practice of mental health. But not to say that I think that mental illness is false. That's not that. And thank you for asking me to clarify that. Yeah, my, my, my question wasn't exactly that, so a bit t h o u g h But、um, it was kind of.、Uh, I, I, I love your work and thank you very much. It's an amazing,、um, amazing book and I love your paper on structural competence as well.、Um, but I was just wondering this thing about violence and how schizophrenia became framed as, as kind of violent and aggressive. But, you know, I mean, we have、um, raving madness, you know, has always. Um, and not to say that schizophrenia and madness kind of exactly map onto each other, but I think,、um, you know, in many cultures, madness is associated with violence. And, and that's, and I see very, I mean, I, I do research in Ghana and I see very much、um, similar associations of, 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 of madness. And, and if, you know, if you're in the hospital, that will become schizophrenia as. As, as, as,、um, as associated with violence. But I think then it's also, it would also be interesting to do this kind of research and think about how,、um, which is some, something of what I try to do, is think about how, you know, in Ghana it's also become conflated with ideas of drug, drug use and become very much associated with kind of 
the young man smoking cannabis and, and, and that's the kind of... Yeah. Yeah, that's so a, that's I just wondered what you're... But on the, in the long durée, you know, madness and violence have kind of gone hand in hand as you could have seen on the gates of the Bethlehem Hospital in... You know, sure. In it's just funny because it's always... It's always both. I mean, I hope, I hope we can agree that it's, it's always both, right? And I'm not trying to say, you know what I mean? Like, when I worked in the psych, there were people I was afraid of, you know? And I'm not, you know, and things like that. So I'm, I'm not trying to discount any of that, but there's always this context around what we mean by violent, what kind of violence, how we interpret different kinds of violence. And I'll, I'll give you another example from the U.S. with apologies. Um, but it's like, think about the interpretation of, the black power violence, right? That was a kind of violence that was insane, but it was also a threat to the state, right? Um, it was, so it was very cultural violence. When people wrote about it, it was like, it's the insanity of black culture. And I would contrast that. We have um, a terrible mass shooting phenomenon in the United States, and everybody jumps and diagnoses the shooter with schizophrenia. It happens every, every single time. Um, and number one, if you really have severe schizophrenia, you're not going to be able to plan a mass shooting anyway. So every time it happens, I'm like, this is going to last for one one day. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it's funny to see the cultural work that diagnosing mass shooters with schizophrenia has done because all of a sudden there's this huge outpush to say, it's just this one crazy individual. It's just this one person. It's not gun owners. It's not white people it's not men all you could use all these other all these other ways of talking about mass shooters but we don't right it's this big push and so in the gun work that i do i basically say the black violence was a violence of black culture but everybody like the nra their whole goal is to individualate it it's the individual brain so they were funding research on the brains of mass shooters like individual brains and everybody's like why are you doing it i'm like yeah because they want to individuate it they don't want to so you would never say this is a disorder of white people, um, but that you know that that's the story we could tell. So I, I, my point is, there's always a culture around violence. Now I'm not making a clinical point for people who do clinical work in here. I know that's very hard when you're doing clinical work to just step back and say there's a bigger cultural story, but I do think in the bigger framework of the stories that we tell, that has to be part of the conversation. Is that you know violence is so contextual, and we tell different stories based on those contexts. Uh, hi, I was just wondering, um, I do some historical work at the moment about colonial psychiatry and you often find that in, um, at least in French and British colonies, uh, that uh, people who resisted, for, who took up political resistance were often put into prisons and then came into contact with colonial psychiatrists. And I feel like in earlier on in what you said about the white women who were in this asylum, that there was this diagnosis of being of embarrassing your husband um, and I'm thinking of kind of like the situation particularly of white women post First World War um, here and in the US and I'm wondering whether you see a kind of wider pattern happening where particular psychiatric diagnoses are deployed when groups are mobilizing in ways that come to um, unsettle social order. So in, in this example around black men, but then earlier on about white women being rude to their husbands or whatever it might be. I, I would just say, and it's a brilliant question, thank you, that hopefully that's the skill that we can learn from case studies like this, because the minute you start paying attention to it, as I'm sure you're finding with your historical work, it's, it's everywhere, you know? So it's terrorism, it's psychologists in Abu Ghraib, it's things like that. So it's like, you know, 
and again, I'm not trying to in any way discount, it's attention, right? I'm not trying to discount the need for more treatment and more things like that. But I guess I would just, in, instead of giving you one diagnosis, I always tell my students, what's the story that people are going to tell in 10, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now? You know, what's the, and, and maybe that's a story about a diagnosis. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, schizophrenia, depression, medicalization. But Everything's so atomized now that for me it's also a story about words like terrorism, for example, where mental illness comes into the way we tell the story. In other words, it doesn't just have to be the diagnosis itself, but mental instability becomes part of the way we, we narrate it. Um, just to say, before we take more questions, we are a bit pushed for time, so there are lots and lots of questions, but could I ask people who have questions to just sort of keep them a little bit on the short side? And can I just say, why don't we, because we are short on time, why don't we do a, a mashup? Why don't we just have a bunch of questions and then I'll 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 uh, answer them all at one time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in um, I guess the kind of who has the power to kind of define um, schizophrenia as as an illness. Um, and the, I guess we're kind of moving towards trying to be more inclusive, but it's kind of like giving someone a voice, but within the same kind of structural. And, and power system and I was just wondering um, kind of with the DSM and things like that where you think or how much you think can be achieved by having more different people in the discussion so kind of with different backgrounds different um, cultures and experiences or if even if you involve them in the discussion because of the um, I guess kind of the structure that they're within um, the I guess the outcomes might be quite similar mm -hmm. I don't know does that make sense? Uh, very um, much sense yeah. Hi, thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, I just should mention my background. I'm interested in securitization of mental health, specifically in the war on terror. But uh, before I just ask my question, which is very, very uh, specific, I just want to mention about that comment about diagnosis of schizophrenia in Africa and other places in the world. I mean, I think many elements of that, that the answer to that question also requires colonization and power, as that was mentioned previously. Um, to, to, to understand why certain diagnoses are spread across the world. And we also need to remember Franz Fanon is also a psychiatrist himself. I think there's a lot of things we need to take into consideration there. Um, my question actually has to do specifically with, um, because you're, you're dealing a lot with the securitization or the criminalization of, of black bodies in the United States. And Michelle Alexander, for example, had written a very good book on uh, the new Jim Crow and I think one of the elements um, I'm curious about is the subject of colorblindness. Um, that, in fact, in a post-racial society or a supposedly post-racial society, many of the, the sort of policies and the infrastructures that are racist evade the charge of racism uh, by saying, well, look, schizophrenia, for example, you know, it can be black or white. You know, we don't see, we don't see color or race. So I'm wondering how you incorporate the, the concept of colorblindness in, in your work, at least in a contemporary sense. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I keep mine really brief. I just wondered about the role of McCarthyism, the Cold War, etc., and just what happened in the 50s and how, how Americans saw themselves and society and the impact of that on, on mental health and diagnosis. Do you want to respond to those now? I'll take maybe no, no, three I'll tell more. You, I'm, I gotta, I'm, I'm You've it. got it covered. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Thanks for your talk. It's fascinating. Um, mine was about, um, I guess, uh, people of colour and not just necessarily looking at a black definition in that uh, I'm aware as someone who's half Trinidadian, there are a lot of people who perhaps are mixed with, say, Indian and black or Chinese and black who've also been diagnosed with schizophrenia because arguably some of the experiences they've had in England have been, if not similar, they've, they've had the same levels of marginalisation, racism, discrimination. And there are also mixed-race people in the 80s where there are lots of films coming out saying mixed-race mixed up and confused and there were lots of diagnosed schizophrenia. I don't know statistically whether that's continued, but I'm interested. Just take a slight step back. Do you think the DSM and the modern um, psychiatric professions um, focus on making cl clinical diagnoses and putting a term on conditions that can actually get in the way of you know, making treatment um, possible? Because uh, I think it's nearly inevitable that mental illness ends up being conflated with identity. It's not just with schizophrenia. You can take PTSD. You can take attention deficit, any sort of thing. And then this gentleman here, yeah. I was just wondering um, how this diagnosis of, or overdiagnosis of black people um, in America relates to uh, like Tuskegee experiment and eugenics. Um, yeah, how that relates, because lots of experiments were done on black women, yep. removal of wombs, etc. Yep. So. And one last one, I think the woman back there. You can just say it. Great. Well, thank you. Amazing <laughs> questions. Now, these are brilliant questions. And I mean, humbly, I don't know the answer, right? I mean, in a way, what I'm trying to do here is start a conversation where we can think about exactly these issues, right? And so I'm not going to say, you know, it's a cucumber, something like that, uh, because many of these things are um, many. Thank you for laughing at that terrible joke. Uh, but, um, but um, you know, many of these things are things we should be thinking about when we think about this topic, right? And so my first answer is one of humility, that I think this is all, uh, all very important. Just to um, tie some of these together, I mean, there's one thread about the DSM. What's the function of the DSM? Um, if the DSM is oppressive, should we join the DSM and try to change the DSM? Should we overthrow the DSM? And so one important point there is just to see, first of all, the work that the DSM does, which is complicated, right? Because at least in the U.S., if you don't get a DSM tr diagnosis, um, you, you can't get reimbursed for your own treatment, and the doctors don't get paid and all these kind of things. So it, it serves this function. So part of the issue is a debate not just about the actual diagnosis itself and the framework of the diagnosis, but actually a bigger structural conversation about what we work we want a diagnostic manual to do. And on one hand, again, you don't want to go into the doctor and the doctor says, like, um, man, I've never seen one of those before. You know, like, you want them to say, like, here's a category uh, and I know what you're, you think and here's the path we go down and stuff like that. And so part of it is, I think, a bigger conversation just about the function and the role of the diagnosis itself, which I think is important, and how much power we have. Now, in the DSM itself, man, there's no other profession that has industry-sponsored 
locked door kind of things. And so I do think there is a particular problem with the DSM where they're basically letting industry write these diagnostic categories in line with like reimbursement. So I do think the DSM needs to be blown up, to be totally honest, um, just because the power of industry is so great. But the, I think the flip side of that is even if you get more representation of, you know, survivor communities and everybody like that, there's still the bigger question of the function of the diagnosis that I still think is going to be very important. And so, you know, it, it's always going to be mixed with identity in, in this, in this in the, at least in the economic systems that we have. And I think that that's part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, schizophrenia itself has this own history, right? But it, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn about the diagnosis of schizophrenia. I mean, there have been moves to dramatically oversimplify schizophrenia. But... I don't know. It's it's just weird in psychiatry, right? Because so, diagnosis is so little driven by research, <laughs> you know. Um, and that's not a knock. I just think we should be humble. I mean, I honestly feel like we should be much more humble about what we don't know. I feel like that would be much better for everybody, and it would make this much better. But then it's hard to, you can't charge somebody for I don't know. Um, in terms of um, color blindness, great question. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that that's very important. And what I've tried to show with stigma here is the ways that race functions. That this is why, with no disrespect to anybody here who uh, loves cultural competency, but this is why cultural competency drives me so crazy is because it puts the power in the diagnostic gaze. It's basically like I'm walking into a room and there are Every culture is another diagnosis I'm making, right? And so part of what I'm showing is that there are all these proxy conversations about race, that the minute we stop talking about race, but I, you know, in a way, cultural competency talks about race. It doesn't talk about racism, right? And so what I'm trying to say is, if you look at this kind of stigma, we need a rhetoric for racism, and that's why structure is important. And so colorblindness can fit into that, I think, as a critique of colorblindness, right? <laughs> because colorblindness is not just the color observed by the doctor. It's the racialized system, right? I think that's very important. Um, Russia, McCarthy, Tuskegee, I'll mush those together. Um, super important um, because I think the U.S. has gotten off the hook, really, for a lot of this stuff, right? If you think about the global political uses of the diagnosis of schizophrenia, it was too easy for us to say, well, that happened in the gulags or that happened in Stalin or in Tiananmen Square. We don't have the U.S. version of that. And, when, and the only story you're told about racism in medicine is the Tuskegee study when you're in medical school. So you learn about the Tuskegee study from your first day in medical school as if that's the only racist thing that ever happened in American medicine. And so part of what I'm trying to say is actually racism is much more prevalent and colorblind and all these factors, but we have to expand what we're doing because there was a version of political use of schizophrenia, but it was, it's not as apparent to us because it's, 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 it's our own particular system. Um, I would say um, that links to this thing about political systems. Am I forgetting any, did I forget anybody? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so all, all these factors. I mean, again, I, I think I think substance use is going to be an important part of this conversation, but it does link to the, the, the gentleman who asked about the identity of the diagnosis and what happens when we... I mean, there's so many things. I'll, I'll use mass shootings as another example. Why I hate talking about the schizophrenia of the mass shooter is because, really, what causes a mass shooting? It's the maybe the person had a diagnosis. The diagnosis didn't lead them to commit the mass shooting. It was also the availability of guns. Um, yeah, the context, um, addiction, 
um, sexism, all these other factors. So the minute we create the identity of the disorder, it also eliminates all these other factors, which ties back to the question about politics, I think, which is that um, the minute you say, oh, it's schizophrenia in that black man's brain, you don't have to take seriously the content the content of the protest, right? It lets you erase all these other factors. And so, in a way, when we move back and say content, context, it's also taking seriously that protest. So, thank you. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Uh, before everyone leaves, uh, a few very quick announcements. Uh, first of all, um, those of you who've come here for the first time, thank you. And could we have a show of hands who would like to see more discussions about the theme of race and psychology and mental health? Okay, so please do make your, your voices heard. Um, do do uh, sort of contact us to, to let us know, and that's always very helpful. Secondly, um, Jonathan's books are on sale downstairs, and he has kindly agreed to do a book signing. Thirdly, um, after such a kind of exhilarating talk, it seems to me that there's always this sense of there, that there was more discussion that could have been had. So I do just recommend that anyone who wants to carry on the discussion, we go on to the, uh, the pub, which is the North Stars down the road. It's a terrible pub, but we can sit there and, um, and have a drink and talk more. Thank you. <laughs>